The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Защитим и наш народ, и нашу государственность от любых угроз, в том числе от внутреннего предательства. А то, с чем мы столкнулись, это именно предательство. That was Russian President Vladimir Putin vowing last weekend to protect Russia from treason following an aborted attempt to march on Moscow by a group of mercenaries all eyes are on Russia. Putin's perceived weakness and what that means for the war in Ukraine is the focus of this week's newsroom. Welcome back to the newsroom, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. The mighty strength of Russia was called into question last weekend when Yegevny Prigozhin, a former protege of Vladimir Putin and head of the mercenaries from the Wagner Group, set off for Moscow. And although the coup was abandoned, it has created uncertainty about whether Putin's reign as leader of Russia will continue, what it means for the war in Ukraine, and are investors placing bets on how defence stocks will perform? Here to talk to me about this fast-moving situation is Lisa Yuka, our European editor of Breaking Views, and Pierre Briançon, our guru on all things to do with Ukraine, who just came back from a trip there recently. So, Pierre and Lisa, welcome back. Glad to be here. So, Pierre, I will start with you. You pounced on this story at the weekend. And I just wondered if you could give our listeners a bit of context about Prigozhin and the backstory between him and Putin and what led to this tussle at the weekend. Prigozhin is a former protégé of Vladimir Putin, comes from uh, St. Petersburg, the same. He's a former gangster who had spent nine years in prison in Soviet times for uh, uh, armed robbery. Uh, a former hot dog hot dog stand owner who went into catering and because of his Putin connection made a fortune literally uh, catering with uh, to the um, uh, Russian government ministries etc and he founded Wagner group presumably on the rec- at the request of uh, Putin to serve as a mercer- mercenary uh, band of soldiers who could uh, project uh, and defend Russian interests in in areas where Russian is, Russia was loath to intervene formally and officially. So they had that deniability uh, when so like a private group, a, a total right? private army uh, intervening in Africa. They're very present in Africa with a business model, so to speak, consisting in pilfering uh, natural resources, uh, commodities and minerals from the countries where they operate and selling their services to the highest bidder. Uh, All this in accordance and aligned with what Putin had defined as Russia's interest in whatever region they intervene. When the Ukraine uh, war started, they offered their services and they sent several uh, thousands of uh, soldiers in Ukraine. They beefed up their ranks by recruiting in Russian prisons. And Vladimir Putin himself pardoned thousands of convicts who were then sent to Ukraine. Okay. So then what led to this situation that we saw at the weekend? He, as you said, they were they were obviously they had a relationship, they symbiotic in some ways. What led to him thinking that there was... Prigozhin built a legend around uh, the 
what he called a victory in the town of Bakhmut, which is a town in eastern Ukraine, that his forces uh, recovered from Ukrainian uh, last year. And in fact, they didn't win any battle there, but they destroyed and, and massacred and killed a lot of people. That city has now been destroyed and they had to evacuate when the Ukrainian forces counterattacked a few months ago. So uh, the Bakhmut or what's left of Bakhmut, the ruins of Bakhmut are now under uh, Ukrainian control. But Prigozhin used that as a sign that a victory, at least a victory, had been won uh, by uh, Russian forces. And he said, and he went very quickly into a conflict with uh, the regular army, whose uh, mistakes, blunders, uh, were, were have been a, a highlight of the of the war to, up to then. And Prigozhin sold Bakhmut as the only victory that Russia ever uh, had in in Ukraine. The conflict with the Russian defense minister and the army chief of staff uh, increased to the point where uh, the army tried to. Uh, basically uh, integrate the Wagner forces into their ranks, and which is led to the conflict of Prigozhin. He had been increasingly insulting through videos, Twitter or Telegram messages, the highest ranking uh, Russian military generals, officers, in words that would have uh, had him condemned to 20 or 30 years in jail if he had been a regular citizen. And actually, uh, some Russian opponents have been condemned to jail for less than that. Okay, so then he basically says that he's going to march on Moscow, then sort of quickly decides that this is not a great idea. Well, he first decided he first decided to take over a city in the south of Russia called mm-hmm. Rostov on Don, which is a big, I mean, it's a one million uh, inhabitant city, and took over the garrisons and all the military installations. He did that with without any any opposition, with remarkably uh, little uh, resistance from the uh, armed the regular army, and then went on and then sent made a declaration to the effect that he couldn't, he demanded the resignation of the defense minister and the chief of staff, and then sent his uh, military convoy, a military convoy, on the road to Moscow. He arrived up to less than 200 kilometers from Moscow, without, here again, without resistance, and shooting down at least six helicopters from the regular, regular army, and maybe one uh, jet fighter. So there was uh, yeah bad blood you could say between the army and and but the, the, what has what is striking since then because that's that's is that the first Putin's first reaction was to condemn the whole thing as treason. Treason in the Russian legal system is is punished by death, and even though Prigozhin was a former Putin friend, he then was allowed to basically uh, go away with slap on his wrist through a compromise brokered by the Belarus president mm-hmm. on the request, apparently, of Russian authorities. And uh, his forces will now be either integrated into the Russian army or uh, be allowed to follow him in exile in Belarus. So, of course, the speculation is what's, what become of Vladimir Putin the whole thing. Yes. The first very martial reaction promising or seeming to promise terrible punishment on the on the traitor 
um, he has since uh, the, the, then the 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 Russian FSB, which are of the security forces, announced uh, that they had dropped uh, the investigation of the whole mutiny, on the curious reason that the mutiny had stopped. So it apparently means that you can kill a few dozen Russian soldiers, and uh, threaten to march on Moscow and and then be allowed to, and then the investigation stops. So the question is whether. Putin has been weakened or is was already weak enough that such a thing could happen and what 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 happens to him now and the, the, the whole spec the, I think the the, the 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 mutiny or the consequences of mutiny are yet to be played and so we have we the situation is still very um unsettled as we saw from conflicting reports from Moscow. But then the question is for the rest of the world, is especially for uh, Europe or Asia, is what becomes of Vladimir Putin and whether or not the discussion, or if maybe something more radical about Vladimir Putin's immediate future has already started in uh, in Moscow's uh, higher echelons. And, and so, Lisa, you were looking, the market opened, obviously, on, on Monday. We got a sense then of what investors were thinking about the situation. So you could tell us a little bit about that, Lisa, just about we saw the defence stocks were all down. They have obviously rallied massively since the, the war in Ukraine as countries like Germany really bulk up their defences. So what what did you take then from, from the way that the defence stocks were performing? Yes. So, I mean, after once the market opened on um, Monday, I mean, the first thing we could see was, uh, yeah, sharp fall in um, some of the defense stocks like uh, uh, Germany's Rheinmetall, which makes the famous Leopard tanks. Um, You know, they were sort of down about five, six percent and similar losses were also noticed uh, with uh, Sweden's Saab, which is chiefly a defense company, actually. And, uh, you know, Italy's Leonardo, just to, to mention a few European names. But the, the, the message was a bit mixed because uh, um, clearly uh, the, there was no coup. Uh, so the situation didn't escalate uh, as feared at the weekend. Um, so what were investors thinking? So some people were probably thinking that if Putin has to concentrate on internal affairs because, as Pierre was explaining, even though the mutiny, you know, was halted at some point or halted itself, I mean, it's still quite unclear how events will unfold, you know, in in the next few days and weeks. So if, if Putin and the Russian hierarchy must focus on internal affairs, they have less time and energy to concentrate on the Ukrainian war. So some people were probably thinking, okay, that means maybe the Ukrainian war is going to end sooner. Um, and and a war, um, as we know, um, as, as bad as it is, is normally a good thing for defense companies because they get contracts, you know, and, and we've definitely seen this in Europe um, with lots of countries pledging to hire uh, their, their spending in the budget uh, for defense. And I'm talking uh, about European companies, uh, countries that really hadn't really spent too much on this. However, I mean, this this is probably going to be a false hope. Right. Uh, so if you if you just let me take a step back, I mean, the you know, the fall is 
is very small compared to the rally that some of these companies have enjoyed. So we've seen Rainmetal rallying, you know, 150% since the beginning of the war. So it's a bit of a blip rather than a serious change of heart that investors have towards, you know, the the, the security situation uh, in Thank Europe you. and probably globally. I think we can safely make the point that people who pretend to know what the consequences for the war in Ukraine are, are probably lying or don't know what they're talking about. The reason is that I'm, I'm excluding for now the very unlikely scenario where, say, there's a popular uh, upheaval or such a radical change at the top in Moscow that uh, liberal, vaguely more democratic forces and a more democratic leader uh, takes control of the country and then makes a peaceful noise to the effect that he would be ready to talk about the situation. Okay, so let's take let's take the, the, the scenario where the same gang fights among themselves to know both on, on a personal matter, it's, it's a, a conflict of personalities, and on idea what to do with the situation. It's It could go, it, yeah, there's a possibility that, uh, as Lisa said, they would be too focused on Russia and they decide that uh, now is the time at least to pause in Ukraine, which would give the Ukrainian army another opportunity to continue their counter-offensive, which is not doing badly at the time. Okay. And we saw on Sunday that Ukraine took advantage of the situation to push in three different places to advance their uh, their uh, territorial uh, presence. On the other hand, uh, I think it's going to take a long time. And I think you can also make the case that just to prove that Russia has not been weakened by the mutiny, which any future leader, first, it could be still put in which in 2.0 is still very credible and it's still a scenario that may be the central one, okay? He takes control, but he takes back control, if you want to use that expression, mm-hmm. over, over Russia and the, on the, on the Russian uh, government uh, apparatus. But if any other leader would also have to prove that Russia has not been weakened and so would at least it would take months, if not more, for the situation to change on the ground. So again, speculating that just weakness in Moscow might uh, might be a good thing. Yes, it could, but it's not. Uh, it, it's highly speculative at, the, at this time. I, I think, sorry, I was going to say I think Lisa as well. The sort of point I think is interesting to make that the defense stocks, and I think you made this in your in your review this week, is that although, like, even if the the war continues. Or, or if it stops, you wouldn't expect defence stocks to come down because actually what Russia has pre- presented to the West is quite a big threat. And it has sort of shown the weaknesses of their of their defence abilities, anyway, no, particularly no. countries like Germany. So they do need to spend continuously, regardless of whether a peace deal was brokered tomorrow. Yeah, that, no, that's, absolutely. That's a yeah. structural thing, which is an increase in defense budgets all over the world. But this might be a good moment to, you know, simply take profits and and pause a little bit before resuming. Mm. Yes, I mean, this may be a good moment because, um, as mentioned, you know, the stocks have rallied massively. But, uh, you know, what I was arguing in the piece I wrote is that, you know, we're very far from pricing 
peace or you know a stable geopolitical environment and there's obviously plenty of other threats uh, you know even setting aside Russia I mean there's growing tensions between the West and China there is you know an enormous amount of cybersecurity threats that sometimes you know have also uh, you know turned to be physical threats to, to infrastructure so that needs surveillance and you know all sort of uh, equipment to deal with that so um you know to kind of argue that a sort of a change in russia would would lead to you know less uh, defense spending i mean it's probably um a false hope i would say I, I would also add another point i mean i i agree with pierre that change could take months to unfold but at the same time what really spooked investors is the the speed of uh, the potential mutiny i mean obviously it didn't happen in the end but people were surprised at the speed of the change of events again it all fizzled out in the end but you know for about 24 hours it kind of looked you know that it could could take place in moscow which is the heart of russia and nobody had really factored that in i mean nobody i mean maybe someone in the intelligence service but let's say in general people definitely not thinking about that scenario i think that's certainly really not that fast and I think that's really interesting because, Pierre, does that sort of, even if there is this, as you say, Putin 2.0 and he takes back control and shows a real, you know, force and that he is still in power, still has strength, that actually this option, this possibility that you would have a mutiny is there now? Well, the mutiny reveals something that is, that remains, whether Prigozhin is in Moscow, in Belarus, or where you know, it could be in Africa, is that Putin is failing in his war in Ukraine. So his main problem Im- immediately is, can he find someone, whether it's the defense minister or the chief of staff or someone else, who can devise another way for Russian forces to conduct the war. It's going to be incredibly difficult because the best units have been decimated by Ukrainians. So he he now relies on conscripts or contract soldiers who are not very well trained. Russian equipment doesn't work very well. Russian weapons are not very effective. And so these are his core problems. And if this continues, unrest at the top of the Russian state will continue and the idea that uh, Putin is not such a great uh, successful uh, leader and cannot make Russia great again, if you allow this comparison again, uh, will will, will uh, cause him problems. Because the real at the core of the of the of the of the Prigozhin mutiny is the fact that the 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 Russian army is stuck in Ukraine. But to just to ca- carry that forward, does that put him in a very desperate situation? What you've just laid out there. I think I think he has to change things, and I think his capacity to do it is very limited, given the the the, the real uh, capacity or, or or inability rather of the Russian uh, defense forces. Yeah, I mean, I I I would say that you know fatigue, you know war fatigue. Indeed, um, it's something that could completely you know wear out. Well, completely could wear out support. For Putin, I mean, as as Pierre was mentioning, certainly amongst troops, you know, who don't probably quite understand 
while they are fighting in Ukraine. So, you know, if the war continues uh, and, and probably Prigozhin was trying to exploit that feeling, you know, he's someone who has been on the field. So kind of, you know, talking to the troops. But I to throw this even further, if you want, uh, uh, fatigue could also uh, affect the West at some point. I'm talking about European countries because, um, you know, Europe reacted with um, unexpected unity to the threat in Ukraine and, and people are, governments are spending more money on defense. But if this drags on for a very long time, if it was to drag on, you know, the idea of spending a lot of money on defense and maybe taking away money from health care or other areas of the budget, you know, which ordinarily people may rely on, you know, could become an issue. I mean, it's not an issue now, but, you know, I'm just talking but that could become an issue in a very long term scenario. I, can, I, kind of, I doubt that at, at least as far as Ukraine is concerned, Ukraine support is concerned, which doesn't cost a lot of money either to Europe or to the US. Uh, even US support could, could could dwindle altogether and Europe could still would could still afford supporting Ukraine, including Ukraine's reconstruction for in the next 10 years. But is it true to say that it's for, not costing much when energy prices are where they are after the war? And inflation and all of that and grain. And, I mean, country, some countries are Ukraine, spending less than 1% of the GDP the, on defense. Ukraine, You're doubling that. Yeah, the, the defense, defense budget is one thing. You can argue that with or without Ukraine, defense budgets would have to increase in, in any case because because Russia is Russia, current Russia is Russia. And so this will only uh, uh, shrink when when uh, a, a uh, more peaceful Russian government uh, operates in Moscow. And uh, so I'm not really sure about the fatigue itself of Ukraine. And um, and, and, and again, defense budget have to increase for, 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 for other reasons in any case. Uh, which was very clear at the Ukraine Recovery Conference last, and I was struck by that sentence that last week in London, the, the, the sentence that was repeated by several ministers of war, is that we are supporting we will support Ukraine for as long as it takes, mm -hmm. and uh, you can argue whether words matter in politics, etc. But I was at least this means something. This this they know it doesn't cost that much. And it's pretty clear that as long as Ukraine requires it, support will be here, will be there, at least financial support. That's different thing than saying, of course, the associated cost, which you both mentioned, both in terms of budget defense and yeah, yeah. energy prices, etc., are, are, are there. And, and but again, here again, energy is not is not will not increase forever. Well, fascinating conversation, guys. Thank you very much, Pierre and Lisa. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again soon. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashtich in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Apple Podcasts, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. 
to the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.